Okay, Romans 9, 25 through 33, and in case you didn't notice, this is kind of a, a tree here to the left that's uh, in bad shape, but it does have a leaf. It's a remnant. So as, as we think about this passage, there are a few uh, uh, things to consider. First of all, always context. As we engage the Word of God, we always want to look at the context, handle passages in their context. And uh, as uh, our, our, our brother John handled this morning, uh, Romans 9, 19 through 24, uh, we see the potter's rightful choice. God has the sovereign right to make choices. And we see an incredible and awesome uh, consideration of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And they are not in conflict with each other. Now, free will, the philosophical concept, and God's sovereignty are in conflict. Uh, but that's a whole other conversation. Instead, what we see in Scripture is God's sovereignty and human responsibility and human accountability. And that's what we see in, in that passage. So we see the potter has the rightful choice. And, and, and as we move into this passage, we see that this, this, this people, uh, broadly speaking, has stumbled. But God has made promises to them. How is he going to keep his promises? He's made all these promises in the first eight chapters uh, about our position in Christ and how incredible that is and how impactful that is. And yet, as the average Jewish believer looked around, they would not have seen God's promises being fulfilled in that day. So what is happening? Uh, well, we discover in this, in this section, verses 25 through 33, there's a remnant and it's not stumbled, this particular remnant. Uh, so for context, we understand God's right to make these choices and to in, engage in this way. Uh, Paul will present evidence. He doesn't just give a theological ex extrapolation of some concepts. He, he provides evidence. And as we look at that evidence, specifically from Hosea and Isaiah, we discover that there's a concept Paul brings up that is absolutely pivotal to this discussion. First uh, Peter chapter 2 and Matthew 16, these passages are going to tell us exactly how this righteous remnant can exist and who the person is that, uh, that grounds and roots it all. So it's going to be a stunning thing, but it's, it's really about evidence. So we're, we're really focused on the evidence that Paul presents. So let's look at the evidence. 9.25, we'll see evidence from Hosea. Uh, a people will be called. 9.26, more evidence from Hosea. A place of calling. You see, it's not just about the people. It's also about the place. And those who engage in the realized eschatology, the concept that these things are fulfilled already, they seem to totally neglect the place of calling. Uh, that is very significant. And then verse 27, evidence from Isaiah, a remnant will be saved. This is nothing new. This is nothing particularly surprising. A remnant will be saved. Well, how can that be? Verse 28, we'll see more evidence from Isaiah. There will be a quick and thorough cut. Wow. So a remnant will be saved even through the midst of this quick and thorough cut. Then uh, in verse 29, more evidence from Isaiah. A seed will be protected. A seed will be protected. Uh, the English translation there is going to be remnant. But it's just the word for seed, and that is significant. 
And then as we uh, move on, we'll see in verses 30, 31, 32, the problem is stated in very clear terms. Uh, A people has stumbled. Well, how do we get from God making all these promises in the first eight chapters and our confidence to believers looking around and realizing God is not keeping His, fulfilling His promises, I should say, with Israel at that point in time? How should we look at that and still have confidence? It's all explained in these chapters, 9, 10, and 11. We see the righteousness of God is demonstrated through His working with Israel. And in this particular section, these verses, 25 through 33, we see how God does it. It's kind of the mechanics of it. It's a very technical aspect. And then verse 33, more evidence from Isaiah. And this is the real beauty of this section. There's a problem stated and a solution. And that solution... Uh, addresses a question that we so often get wrong. So we'll have some fun with that. So let's, let's, uh, let's examine uh, Romans 9.25, as he says also in Hosea. Okay, now remember, just preceding this, uh, he, he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he also called not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles, So uh, there are believers now of both communities, Jewish and Gentile, uh, but what about the Jewish people and what about the promises that God has made? He says, as he says also in Hosea, so he presents his first bit of evidence, I will call those who were not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. Now, uh, if you have your Bibles open, uh, go back to Hosea chapter 2. And verse 23. And I didn't put all these passages on the slides because we, we got to do some work and you got to stay awake. We read there in uh, Hosea 2.23, I will sow her for myself in the land. And I'm reading the, the previous context in that section. And again, notice the location matters. The place matters. I will also have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion. And I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. Now, uh, the, the, the term for compassion there uh, is, is a term that uh, is translated by Paul as uh, agape, as love. Uh, and so he will, uh, God will demonstrate his love on her who had uh, not previously obtained that, or, uh, and her who is not beloved will be beloved. Well, now, who is this? Uh, who is this? Who is this people? Well, people will be called. Uh, let's look at the next verse, and we'll see more evidence from uh, Hosea. Uh, and this is going to be Hosea one ten. So we'll go back a chapter. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, "You are not my people," there they shall be called sons of the living God. Now, who is this? This people that. That was said to not be his people. Who is this? Well, we need to read the context, Hosea 1.10. Yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to whom? Them. The sons of Israel. In that place, 
Where it was said to them, you are not my people, it will be said to them, you're the sons of the living God. What Paul is explaining is this nation has fallen. This nation has stumbled. And yes, God is doing this new thing with the Gentiles and with the Jews, the Jews first. But this is not the fulfillment of these promises. And the evidence that Paul is presenting from Hosea and then from Isaiah is convincing. It shall be in that place where it said to them, you are not my people. Uh, it'll be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. So the place matters. The people matters. God has made these promises. There will be people that come from this fallen nation. And it is not the church. And by the way, we're going to see that so clearly uh, because at the end of this section, Paul mentions something that Jesus mentions, that Peter mentions. And it resolves an important issue. These will be called sons of the living God. Now, if we go back to Romans chapter 4, which we won't do uh, in any detail, but I just mentioned this. In Romans chapter 4, we discover that Abraham had, uh, was a father in three ways. Okay? Uh, we find he's the father of the Jews according to the flesh. Okay? Uh, and then we find he is the father of those who are not uh, kindred of the flesh, but are of the same faith. He's the father of the faith. So he's the father of believing Gentiles. And then the third group that's mentioned are those who are both uh, of the flesh and of the faith. Those three groups that are mentioned in Romans 4 really explain how chapters 9 through 11 is possible. And that's why Paul will later say, uh, not all Israel is Israel. Uh, because of what he's already said in chapter 4. This remnant, this one leaf on the tree, if you will, is going to be a people who are called, people who are of the Jewish flesh of the nation of Israel, but who have faith in the Messiah. And it shall be in that place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. And it's very notable that when we look at the new covenant language in Jeremiah 31, for example, we discover the place matters, the land matters. There is no fulfillment of these uh, blessings of restoration for the people of Israel without the blessing of being back in the land undisturbed. They go hand in hand. And Paul is bringing this up here. And this is certainly not being fulfilled in this present time. Now, we move to verse 27, and we see evidence from Isaiah. Uh, let's uh, flip over to Isaiah, chapter 10. And in Romans 9, 27, we read, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. Now, there are some who teach that Israel was the people of God, and the church is just the continuation of that, and this church has been in existence and growing since Adam. Well, again, the end of this context and the connection that Jesus has to it, and the connection that Peter makes to it, eliminates that entirely. 
This is talking about Israel. Israel means Israel. It sounds so basic, but it is remarkable to me how the simplest of words can become very, very uh, obfuscated. I chose a tough word to talk about simplicity there. Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it's the remnant that will be saved. There will be many. Uh, Romans 4 describes how Abraham is the father of this entire multitude of people. But with respect to the fulfillment of the covenant, he's the father of those who are of Israel and who are of the faith. And that's the remnant. So again, I'm, I'm reading ahead a little bit and bringing that chapter 4 context uh, uh, into this discussion, but reading ahead as we think about the fulfillment of this later. So we've got evidence uh, from Isaiah 10 here. Uh, and here's what, here's what we see in uh, Isaiah 10.22. For though your people, O Israel, may be like the sand of the sea, only a remnant within them will what? Return. Well, verse 21 says, a remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. This is a returning to the Lord. And Paul uses this terminology to say that means they will be saved. They will be delivered. And then verse 23 of Isaiah 10, a complete destruction, one that is decreed, the Lord uh, God of hosts, uh, which is uh, Adon uh, Yahweh Sabaoth, uh, the Lord God of hosts, he will execute this in the midst of the whole land. And of course, Paul says, for the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. Uh, his word will be accomplished, it will be thorough, and it will be, and sudden is probably a better translation uh, there in verse, in verse uh, 28 uh, as we look at that passage. The Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. It will be accomplished. He'll do this on the earth. This will be literally uh, epites geis, upon the earth. And it will be complete. Now, when we look at Romans 9.28, so we just looked at the two Isaiah passages in context. Look at uh, Romans 9.28 as, as Paul explains, uh, just using the data and the evidence that, uh, that Isaiah has presented. That this is going to be uh, literally a quick and thorough cut is a, a way we could translate this. He's going to do it uh, quick and suddenly. And when he does that... Uh, executes his wrath in this way, this remnant will be delivered and will return. Well, again, here we are, probably 51 AD. Israel is not sovereign at that time. They're under the dominance of Rome. Rome is the world power. Um, there's no evidence to point to to say, oh, look, God is running the world. Looks like uh, the Caesars are running the world. So again, if I'm, a, if I'm a, especially a Jewish believer looking around, looking at those covenant promises, saying, what are you doing, God? How are you fulfilling this? And then realizing all these promises he's made to those who believe in Christ, eternal life, sanctification, glorification, these kinds of things. 
How can I be certain? Well, God's righteousness, His glory is demonstrated through Israel. But like any great story, uh, it has to go down before it can go up. And I would say it this way. In order for God to fix something and demonstrate His glory, it's got to be unfixable. And so what Paul has been doing so far, he did it in the first uh, two and a half chapters. He said, your sin is unfixable. There's none righteous, none who seeks after God. It's a problem that can't be fixed. But guess who fixed it? And he's doing the same thing in chapters 9 through 11, describing how it's an unfixable problem, but God fixes it. So in 9.29, Paul continues. He says, And just as Isaiah foretold, unless uh, the Lord of Sabaoth had left to us a posterity, or uh, literally a seed, uh, the Greek word is sperma there, uh, unless Yahweh Sabaoth had left to us a seed, we would have become like Sodom and would have uh, resembled Gomorrah. So now let's go back to Isaiah uh, 1 and just see the context of, of this, this quote. By the way, there, there are different levels of quoting. There are allusions to passages. There are direct quotes from the Hebrew. There are direct quotes from the Septuagint. Uh, and so sometimes you'll see uh, a reference that might not be word for word, and someone says, see, he misquoted. No, not at all. Uh, I might summarize something that you said in a conversation, and I can state it accurately without repeating all of the words. Uh, so there's these various levels of allusions and quotes, but nonetheless, as Paul uh, refers here to this passage, Isaiah 1.9, we read there, unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, uh, we would be like uh, Sodom and we would be like Gomorrah. Uh, and so the, the, the term there is actually in the singular in the Hebrew, so it's a little bit misleading in the English translation. And notice, by the way, how translators will read uh, a theology into their translating work. It's uh, something to kind of be alert to. Uh, it's singular. Well, why is that significant? Well, what Paul says when he quotes the passage and he says a posterity, it's also singular. Seed. That matters. Seed comes from a singular source. And, of course, we know the Messiah is the seed proper, uh, as we see Paul explaining that in chapter 3 in Romans and then also in, in Galatians. Unless the Lord of hosts had left us, a few survivors would be like Sodom and would be like Gomorrah. Now, why this constant reference to the Lord of hosts, uh, Yahweh Sebaoth? Why? Why is that, a, why is that there? Well, remember what we've just read and just studied earlier in chapter 9. This Yahweh is sovereign. He has sovereign rights as the creator. He is the Lord of hosts, of armies. And he was executing his judgment and will execute his judgment. And if Yahweh Sebaoth, the Lord of hosts, executes judgment thoroughly, can anyone survive? Not a chance, unless he has mercy. Wait a minute, didn't we just 
read that earlier in this same chapter about God having mercy? Praise God for His mercy. Praise God for His grace. A seed is protected. So we've got this, this problem that we're about to be introduced to that we've already seen that the nation has fallen. The nation has been disobedient to the gospel. The nation is in unbelief. How can God raise up a remnant from that? The same way he raised up you and I. We were previously dead. We weren't seeking him. So this is what we discover. We look at uh, verses 30 through 32. What shall we say then? So, again, Paul's question and answer approach, uh, this, this rhetorical device that he uses throughout this section, and he's essentially providing an apologetic or a defense for God's unlimited right to rule and to judge. He asks this question, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. Okay, so let's just hold on to verse 30 for just a moment. So he asks the, the rhetorical question, what, what then? What shall we say then? What then shall we say? Uh, how do we explain this? Remember the problem is set up, Israel is fallen, the nation is fallen. But God has made these promises. These promises will be fulfilled, and they will have a soundtrack, and they'll sound something like that, I'm pretty sure. But the present situation that Paul's writing about doesn't reflect that at all. In fact, he says the Gentiles, they weren't pursuing righteousness. They didn't have the law. He's already explained all of that. They didn't pursue righteousness. They didn't seek righteousness. He said back in chapter 3, there's none righteous, none who seeks after God, none who does good. They didn't pursue it, but guess what? They attained it. How did that happen? So we're going to have a contrast between the, the Gentiles who didn't pursue it, but attained it, and Israel who pursued it, but they did not attain it. And Paul uses a little bit different wording here. So we've got the, the Gentiles, and by the way, uh, uh, sometimes we'll see the, the Greeks, the Hellenists, but this is the, the ethna, the peoples. And sometimes I wonder if it wouldn't be better for us just to translate it the peoples, because we think Gentiles is this particular group, but it's all the ethnicities. They didn't pursue righteousness, but they attained it. How in the world could they have possibly attained this righteousness? Well, we've already seen that it was by faith, right? So now he's building on the previous eight chapters, explaining that this incredible uh, salvation by grace through faith that was not earned as wages but given as a gift is by faith and was achieved or uh, arrived at by the Gentiles because of the obedience of faith. So they didn't pursue the righteousness, but they attained it. And it is that specific righteousness which is by faith. Which again, let's just zoom out for a moment. And so many of the theological controversies that we have to deal with 
are because we read so much into the text. But if we take it at face value, the righteousness is, is by what? It's literally tain ek pisteos. Uh, it's out of the faith. It's from the faith. The faith. Definite article. So what do we do with that? What do we do with that? It's by grace through faith. So the Gentiles have this. Okay, so the problem is fixed for them, but what about, what about Israel? This is the problem. The problem is that the people stumbled. The Jewish people stumbled. Well, in verse 31 we see, Israel, on the other hand, in contrast to the, the ethnicities or the Gentiles, they pursued a law of righteousness, but they didn't arrive at that law. Because that righteousness isn't by law. Paul spent 5, 6, and 7 going through that discussion. It's not possible. So the problem has already been explained in the first eight chapters. The solution is very simple. The Gentiles found that solution by God's grace, by faith. Righteousness by faith. Is this a new concept? No. Think about this. We learn about some righteous people early in Genesis. But the first time we ever learn how a person became righteous is in Genesis 15.6. Noah's righteous, but we're not told how he was righteous. It looks like Abel was righteous. We don't know how he was righteous. Enoch, right? But we're finally told in Genesis 15.6 how righteousness happens. Abraham believed in, bet preposition, in Yahweh, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. That's it. That's what the, the ethnicities, that's what the Gentiles discovered, obviously by God's grace. This righteousness is by faith. It's always been by belief in Him. It's never been by anything else. Anyone who wants to add to the recipe, I just challenge you, go make a cake. Add something to the recipe and see how that turns out for you. It generally doesn't work. Unless it's cheese. You can add cheese to just about anything, and that's okay. But we'll just call cheese the grace of God. Then that works. Okay. There is pizza in heaven, by the way. Uh, when he says, behold, I lay in Zion a stone, it's a you know, pizza stone. <laughs> Israel pursued the law of righteousness. They pursued righteousness by the law. They demonstrated the wrong way to do it. They proved it can't be done. It can't be done. Adding to the recipe changes the recipe. The end result is not the same. So the people stumbled, and, and Paul explains in verse 32, he says, why? Why didn't they arrive at righteousness? They did not arrive at even the law. So they were, they were pursuing this law so that they could be righteous, but they couldn't even attain the law because it's impossible. So Paul asks again, he says, why? He says, because they did not pursue it by faith. Or 
better translated. Why? Because not by faith. It's just simpler. But as though by works. So instead of ek pisteos, it's, uh, they thought it was ex ergon. From works, out of works. And it is not. Now, what does that mean? They pursued this law, and when their Messiah came and presented to them righteousness by grace through faith, not having anything whatsoever to do with law, in fact, demonstrating that all were violating the law, that it was beyond just external obedience, as Chapters 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, is all about that aspect of uh, it requires this internal character, this spiritual righteousness that goes so far above and beyond any external deeds, and they did not have it. And they could not have it unless they looked to him. Interesting that Paul is going to bring us right back to that point. They thought it was by works. And then Paul says something incredible here. He says, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. Well, wait a minute. We need some more evidence. I mean, you're making a significant claim, Paul. Uh, you're, you're saying that this whole nation uh, has, has, has failed in its efforts to be righteous, holding to this law. That's a serious allegation. And now you're saying they stumbled over the stumbling stone. What are we talking about here? What is this stumbling stone? And we discover that it's obviously and actually a who. So let's look at uh, 933, and we'll see more evidence from Paul. Uh, let's go back to, first of all, Isaiah 28. Isaiah 28, verse 16. And here we see uh, the Lord God, Adon Yahweh, he says, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes will not be disturbed. By the way, notice the, the, in, the, in, in the English, of course, I use the New American Standard. Uh, every time I, I use that up here, Arnold Fruchtenbaum says, if you just use the ASV, you wouldn't have these problems, so maybe he'll convert me at some point. But uh, you'll notice if you're using that, and in several of the translations, he who believes in it, in italics, in it will not be disturbed. Um, but that is not at all what the passage says. It's literally, he who believes will not be disturbed. Believes what? Well, let's look at what Paul says as he uh, quotes this verse. Just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion. Okay, just zoom out for a moment. Why do we keep having this place? Haven't we had enough of Israel and Zion and Jerusalem? Why do we keep going back? Because God has sworn by His holiness... He has sworn by his name that he will keep these covenants and that they will be kept in that very place. The place 
matters. Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And he who believes, and Paul adds, in him will not be disappointed. So this, uh, this, this cornerstone, this stone matters. This is a particular stone placed in Zion. And people are supposed to believe in this stone. And what has happened? God is telling Isaiah what will take place. He will lay this stone. And what happened when that, that occurred? Israel stumbled over this, stum this stumbling stone. So he lays in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And that last phrase is going to be uh, very important, that uh, rock of offense. Uh, let's look at Isaiah 8.14. And we get a little bit of the context as we look at these passages. He shall become a sanctuary. Well, who shall become? Let's back up. Verse 13. It is the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth, whom you should regard as holy. He shall be your fear. He shall be your dread. He shall become your sanctuary. And, and, and notice, these are forward-looking. And what happened? Israel stumbled. What did God tell Isaiah would happen? But to both the houses of Israel, he will be a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over. And a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many will stumble over them and they will fall and be broken. They will even be snared and caught. So he's holy. He'll be your fear, your dread. He'll become your sanctuary, your refuge. But to both the houses of Israel, Israel and Judah, the entire nation, so to speak, a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over. He's the rock of offense. Okay. Now, remember, as we introduced this section... We looked at the context of the passage. We looked at uh, the, the, the kind of linguistic structure where Paul is appealing to the evidence of Hosea uh, and Isaiah. And in this last verse of this section, we're reminded of something that Jesus said. Uh, think about Matthew 16, 18. This is a, a correlation uh, it, it would be a biblical context. It's not a near context. But as Paul was writing these words, Matthew probably wrote his gospel five, six years before Romans was written. Uh, I don't subscribe to Mark as uh, the priority of Mark, or Mark is the first gospel writer. Matthew was in the room. Uh, and uh, the earliest church historians tell us Matthew wrote his gospel first. He says this to Peter. I also say to you, as, as he's asked, who do you say that I am, right? And Peter has confessed appropriately and correctly that he is the Messiah, 
son of the living God. He says, I also say to you that you are Peter, Petros, in the Greek. And then he says, and upon this rock, uh, te Petra, I will build my church upon this rock. And of course, all kinds of great controversies and theological traditions have come out of that phrase. Uh, upon this rock, I will build my church. Well, first of all, before we go any further, why are we in Matthew 16, 18, when we're looking at Romans 9.33? Listen to what Paul tells us in 9.33. Just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. We've seen... Hosea and Isaiah's prophecies being fulfilled in the stumbling aspect, uh, not yet in the salvation aspect. But Paul adds in 9.33, not just the problem, which is that they stumbled over the stumbling stone, but he tells us the solution. The solution is that he who believes in him will not be disappointed. And the Gentiles had already done that. This stone of stumbling and rock of offense is not an it. Cut scene. Go back to Matthew 16, 18. He says, I say to you, you are Peter. And upon this rock, some say upon this rock means Peter. Oh, it's upon Peter. And of course, an entire uh, church system has developed out of that. That's certainly not what's uh, taking place here. Some say the rock is Peter's confession. How in the world would we ever arrive at that? How would we ever be able to say the antecedent to the rock is Peter's confession? Now, there's some great, fantastic people who hold to that. I don't understand that from this text. Yes, Peter's confession was magnificent. It was true. It was revealed to him by the Father. It's fantastic. But Jesus is saying something far more important than that. And it relates to what Paul is telling us at the end of chapter 9. Upon this rock, what is Jesus talking about? And in our translations, they're not going to reference any particular passages. Because it, it seems they don't acknowledge the connection. Maybe uh, your translation or your reference Bible has that. Upon this rock, and then he says, I will build my church. And that's a future future tense. He will build his assembly. So what is this rock? Well, who's he talking to? He's talking to Peter. I wonder if Peter has anything to say about this. Instead of drawing theological conclusions, let's exegete and see what Peter has to say. 1 Peter 2, 6 through 8. So turn to 1 Peter 2, if you would. And really, this whole context is is fantastic uh, and helpful. What we read in verse 6, this is contained in Scripture. Um, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone. Okay, so we've, this is sounding very familiar, right? Uh, Peter is telling us, using the same passage as Paul has already used, uh, that, uh, that, Verse 4, we come to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men. 
So he's saying Jesus is the stone who's been rejected. He's the stone of stumbling. But Jesus says upon this rock, not the stone, not lithos, but this, this uh, petros. Oh, excuse me, petra. So notice verse 6. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious corner, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Paul uses the same verse. We're dealing with the same context, the same issues. Notice uh, verse 7. This precious value, and I love that. It's literally this honor. Uh, and, and when you think about worldview, that honor and goodness and value has to be defined by God. It's so critical. This, this precious value, then, is for the, uh, you who believe. You who believe. Do we, by the way, do we value the reality that he who believes in him will not be disappointed, that how connected this is with the Hebrew Scriptures, with the promises of God, how we are able to trust in the same Messiah, the same Jesus, the Christ, for our salvation? Do we recognize the value in that? For those who believe, but for those who disbelieve... That's the issue, that's the, the linchpin, the pivot point. Believe versus disbelief. The stone which the builders rejected, this became the very corner. He's referencing uh, Psalm 118 and verse 8. And here it is, you ready? And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Peter is telling you what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 16. Jesus was calling himself the rock of offense and the stone over whom Israel would stumble. And when they stumbled, the nation, as Paul explains in this context, 9 through 11, the nation is set aside for a while. And God does this new thing with both Jews and Gentiles, this new assembly that Jesus talked about in Matthew 16. Peter correlates this and says, this is the one. This is the rock. He is the stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. He started this talking about Jesus in verse 4 of chapter 2, coming to him as a living stone, coming to him. And he explains all these aspects of who he is, and he concludes that section saying, a stone of stumbling and the rock of offense. That's who Jesus says he is. So as we <clears throat> go back to this incredible passage in Romans 9... We have to have that context, not only of what came earlier in Romans 9, but also what came earlier in Isaiah and Hosea, or Hosea and Isaiah, um, chronologically. And then what Peter would say as well about what Jesus said some 20 years earlier. He is the very cornerstone, the stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. It is this rock, he is the one, that resolves the problem. And it's not complicated. Simply put, Jesus is how God keeps his word. Maybe mind-blowing, but it's really not a big deal. It's Kind of simple. God resolves these issues through Jesus, through this Messiah, through this one he sent. He's rejected the first time by the nation. But when we see the new covenant being fulfilled, the whole nation knows him. 
There's no more teaching or evangelism at that point. Oh, the new covenant's being fulfilled in us. Uh, what are we doing here tonight then? Because that's specifically irrelevant based on the new covenant. Uh, I got other things to do and so do you. If that's true, it's not true. The new covenant is for Israel and Judah, the two houses that stumbled over this Messiah. And one day, as we read ahead in the story in these chapters, we see God promises a future for Israel and he will fulfill those promises. And there's nothing complicated about this. It is truly a simple concept. God can fix the unthinkable. He can fix the unfixable. He can resolve the broken. And the simple issue then, as a result, is we can trust in him. Remember what he's talked about in the, in, in the first eight chapters. And remember the exhortation in 12, 1 and 2. Based on the mercies of God, I'm exhorting you, I'm encouraging you. Well, what mercies are those? The ones talked about in the first eight chapters. And then for anyone who would question the reliability of those, we've got chapters 9, 10, and 11, where God demonstrates his righteousness through Israel. And we see that he's trustworthy. We can trust in him. So there's a question that, that we have to ask. What do we do? What do you do with that information? Well, we don't want to stumble, for sure. We don't want to stumble over the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense. Instead, uh, we should be rejoicing that we can trust in him, that he's faithful, he's reliable. Hey, I'm not going to dance up here, but I can put up a, a gif. I praise God. I mean, this is incredible reality that God is faithful, that he will accomplish these promises, that he will fulfill his word. And if he's broken his word to Israel or amended his contract with Israel, then he can adjust his contract with us. Well, guess what? Grace doesn't really mean grace, does it? By faith doesn't really mean by faith. Because we have to add a whole bunch of other things. Because we're trying to achieve righteousness by law. It doesn't work. This is the whole point. This is why the nation stumbled. To demonstrate God's righteousness. To demonstrate God's grace. So that rather than stumbling over this stone and this, this rock, we would trust in him and, and stand firm on him. And it reminds me of Jesus' concluding words to the Sermon of the Mount when he talked about a wise man who builds his house on the rock, on solid ground. And I realized that we have God's word. We have no reason for doubt, uncertainty, uh, wavering. We have the truth of his word. I praise God that he's revealed these things and so clearly. And it raises a red flag when we have to do gymnastics with these texts to make them say something to support a justification by law or a supersessionism. God is done with Israel. These promises weren't really promises to begin with. I do not want to stand before God and say, 
you weren't supposed to do that. Uh, you weren't supposed to save that nation. I remember I was teaching a philosophy class at the University of North Texas, a young lady sitting in the front row. And I would, uh, I would tell, every time they'd ask me a question, I'd say, I'm not going to tell you where I am until the last day of the semester. I'm not going to tell you what I believe. I'm going to present all these different systems to you, let you think through them, and then on the last day you can ask me any question. And inevitably they ask, what do you believe? And so I'd tell them, I'm, because you asked, I'm a, I'm a Bible guy. I believe in the Bible, and I believe in Jesus, and I believe in every word of this. And I'd be able to share the gospel. And I saw this one young lady in one of these classes sitting in the, near the front row, and she just had this just disgusted look on her face. And she said, you're telling me that I've done all these good things, and I can be uh, accepted, but someone like Hitler who's been horrible and awful, at the last second he could have believed in Jesus and he could be saved? And I said, well, the first part's not quite right, but the second part is absolutely correct. Her jaw dropped, like literally dropped, and she said, I could never worship a God like that. What has she just done? She's just created a God in her own image. Wait a minute, we just spent the day talking about, looking at these passages, showing us that God has the divine right, the divine sovereignty over his creation. He's made us in his image, not the other way around. I praise God for that. I praise God for his grace because without that, none of us would be saved. None could be saved, but Praise be to God. Through Jesus Christ, we have life in him. Let's pray. Precious Lord, we love you. We are so grateful that you've loved us first. So grateful that you sent your son. That we might believe in him and have eternal life. Thank you so much for the promises that you've made, the covenants that you've made, uh, and that they will be fulfilled word for word verbatim with the people with whom you made them in the place we're so grateful that we can count on you, rely on you and your word. Uh, just praise you for your sovereignty and your righteousness as demonstrated in these magnificent actions. You are worthy to be praised, and we worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.